From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. Due to the ongoing pandemic, we are not recording in the studio, but remotely via phone and computer. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Bowling Green State University is located in the Great Black Swamp, long a meeting place of the Wyandotte, Shawnee, Lenape, Ottawa, Kickapoo, Fox, Potawatomi, Erie, Miami, Peoria, Chippewa, and Seneca Indian tribes. We honor the rich history of this land and its indigenous inhabitants past and present. Today we're joined by two guests, Dr. Lucy Long and Jerry Reed. Lucy directs the Independent Center for Food and Culture and teaches in American Studies, Ethnic Studies, Folklore, and Nutrition at BGSU. Her research focuses on food, music, and dance as mediums for meaning and community. Lucy served as the director of Finding Comfort slash Discomfort Through Foodways, a project that examines how people are living and eating in these difficult pandemic times. Jerry Reed earned a B.S. in education and an M.A. in popular culture studies from BGSU. He completed an internship with the Center for Food and Culture, working to develop a curriculum that uses food to help children understand cultural conflict. Jerry worked as the assistant director of the Foodways Project. Thanks both for being with me today. I'm really excited to talk about this with you. To get us started, could you tell us a little bit about the Foodways Project and how it came about? Will you start us off, Lucy? Okay. When when the pandemic first hit, um, I started noticing that food media, you know, was it was publishing recipes for comfort food, saying this is a stressful time. It's it's time for comfort food. <laughs> so now I I actually edited a volume um, and published some articles in 2017 on comfort food. You know, so that automatically grabbed me. <laughs> and the, the the first, my initial response to to some of these publications, particularly there was one for the New York Times, and it was Comfort Foods of Famous Chefs. And it was all these specialty ingredients and things that probably the average American would not have in their pantry. And, and I realized, well, you know, first of all, these foods are are not things that I relate to personally as a comfort food, and and they probably are not relevant to many people who who are reading this. But also, the idea of having to go out and find these ingredients, some of which are very expensive, you know, but many of which you would have to go to different grocery stores to try to find them and. And, and I realized that's going to cause a lot of discomfort. So that got me thinking, thinking a little bit more about how during this time, it's not a simple thing to say, here, eat some comfort food and calm down. <laughs> so, um, and then, then also comfort food itself is a very American concept. You know, every, every culture has food that is comforting that reminds people of their childhood and things like that. 
but it's uniquely American in, in that um, there's a particular sort of morality attached to food in, in America. You know, that, that food, different foods are good and bad depending on what they do to your body physically. And, and that we're not even talking about health. <laughs> we're talking about whether or not those foods make you fat, you know, or whether they make you, you know, kind of sluggish or whatever. Um, you know, so, so, so much of our morality around food is tied to how that food then impacts your body, your body image, and whether or not you have the proper type of, of, of body. Um, you know, so, so therefore, Americans talk about good foods and bad foods in terms of good foods are ones that are healthy for us, will keep us nice, fit, and slim. Bad foods are the ones that really taste good. <laughs> lots of fat, lots of sugar, salt. <laughs> but we all know that they're bad for us, you know, that they have negative impacts on, on our weight, on our on our body shape <laughs> and on our energy levels at all. So, you know, and that, that grows out of a very, very distinctive American attitude towards food. So, and the, the phrase comfort food was invented in the U.S. Dr. Joyce Brothers used it in the 1960s as an explanation for, for why so many Americans were starting to be obese said that people are turning to comfort foods. You know, they, 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 they have stress in their lives or they need comfort for some reason. So they're, they're using that as an excuse to eat these fattening foods. So, and then the food industry picked up on that and said, oh, okay, here are some comfort food dishes. And they started using, using the concept to market these dishes, you know, saying that, oh, everybody needs comfort. So here, eat some macaroni and cheese. <laughs> so it, it turned into a marketing category. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting because uh, two thoughts. One is that, um, you know, the opposite of comfort food is discomfort food, right? The things we're supposed to like are the things we're not supposed to enjoy, right? That there really is this um, idea of maybe that is also a very American thing, that sort of, you know, Protestant work ethic that if, you know, we're suspicious of pleasure in some ways. Jerry, what was your particular interest in some of these um, issues in this food waste project? Um, especially as we dug deeper into the interviews that we um, were conducting, I think one of the most surprising and interesting aspects for me was this idea of food of discomfort. And because we focused so much on this idea of comfort food as this a very individual experience um, to help oneself feel better, which is, you know, incredibly relevant and during a time of pandemic and even during a time of stressful elections, right? Um, so when people start talking about foods of discomfort, there's sort of two major things that I've noticed. One is there are foods of actual physical discomfort foods that you just can't eat for dietary reasons, um, whether you're lactose intolerant, um, PKU, et cetera, um, that your diet is limited. And then there's also foods that it's not so much that the food itself causes discomfort in some way, it's the concept of food as a whole. Um, some people have turned their minds now to that, let me redo that. 
a number of people have realized that, oh, you know, now happen to work at home or not work for a while, I'm living well within my means. And they can kind of see that now that they've stepped a little bit outside of that daily um, work that they do, the eight to five. Um, so to be able to realize that, oh, there's got to be a number of people who are not able to live within their means, um, especially during a time like this, where even as I'm struggling, I'm surviving. And so that's brought a number of weird pieces of discomfort, um, just conceptual discomfort. Um, to people and that has caused some to act some to not act at different levels i'm curious in terms of this project because of the pandemic you had to really work remotely entirely i imagine um including with a number of international collaborators so how did that affect the way you collaborate and conduct research we were we were able to actually extend this project much further than most oral history projects. Um, we frequently did not even know where people were when they were responding initially. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and then it, it just kind of happened. I, I, I also um, was using social media, LinkedIn, and then, and then the, the Center for Food and Culture has a website um, and that goes out to anyone who's interested anywhere in the world. Um, and then I was also using Facebook. And so when I was, I was sending out information about this and people were responding, um, and, and then they would tell their friends about it. <laughs> so I, I, also, I also do a lot of work internationally especially on culinary tourism. So, um, so a lot of my international connections were, were seeing this and saying, oh yeah, this is really interesting. And, you know, so they were sending me things. So sometimes people would just send me a little paragraph. This is what's happening here. Um, other times, you know, there, there are, there are, um, there are people who are using this. I, I developed it first as an assignment. For, for an undergraduate class and and then realized, oh, this would actually be very useful <laughs> to do on a larger scale. Um, I should I should mention here too. Um, I did get a little bit of funding that, that helped to cover honoraria for the for the researchers, minimal honoraria, I should say, <laughs> um, from the Association for the Study of Food and Society, and then also humanities. The, Ohio Humanities, formerly the Ohio Humanities Council. Now it's just called the Ohio Humanities. Um, and then also from the Eleatorio Foundation, a, a private foundation. Um, you know, so so when, when this started, it was just like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. Let's see where we can go with it. Um, and then because of my international work, you know, various colleagues in different places were kind of picking up on it and and extending it. So, um, and then the researchers themselves, one of them who also happens to be my daughter, <laughs> is she she teaches in Ireland at a university. So, um, so she's having having her some of her students do the project, and she was interviewing some of her colleagues and friends who tended to be very international. 
you know, so we were hearing from people who lived in Israel or who had parents in Israel and Norway. And, um, and, then, and then another one of the researchers is Chinese studying in the U.S. You know, so he has access to, to a different group of people. You know, so it was, um, this, it's, it's not a model for a social science ethnography. <laughs> a lot of it was serendipity, <laughs> you know, but everything was so sudden and unexpected. And we just kind of took whatever opportunities there were. I, I had worked previously with Jerry. And so when I started getting this idea, I approached him. I said, I don't know if there's going to be any funding, but would you like to sign on to be the um, the assistant director of this? There's a lot of administrative stuff that I'm going to need. And, and he said, sure. I said, no, I don't know about funding, but <laughs> so, you know, so I knew that Jerry was committed regardless of, of funding. So he, he's been, he's been a tremendous help through this. And Jerry, could you talk a little bit about some of the tasks that you were working on and how the pandemic may have, you know, changed the way you had previously worked on projects or worked specifically with Lucy in, in your relationship prior? Um, I, I guess for my tasks, it kind of, there's two halves of it. There's that a, a lot of largely administrative half that, um, you know, it was at home or not at home. It didn't really make too much of a difference. Really. It just depended on which wall I was staring at. Right. Um, but then came the other half of it, which was, um, doing interviews, um, and conducting these interviews with all these participants, um, which was, a very different way than I'm used to doing field work. Um, my field work that I did for my thesis, um, I did at a middle school um, in the area. And I was there with the students for a large portion of the day. So, and that's what I was used to, is just being around the people. So now all of a sudden, doing these cold calls of people I don't know to say, hey, we're going to talk about food for a while, was very different to setting. But because people were already isolated and wanted that contact, they were happy to talk with any stranger about anything. <laughs> um, you know, just that piece of human contact was, was so valuable to everybody that we um, talked to, and it made some of the conversations we've had absolutely fantastic. Um, and yet my work with Lucy Pryor, um, because of the nature of you know, building curriculum, um, you know, what real, the only real thing that changed was that we couldn't really meet face-to-face, -face, um, which, you know, can be... I guess, somewhat solid via Zoom, WebEx, whatever your medium is. I think it's interesting that you're talking about kind of, in addition to comfort food, the comfort of community, right? Um, and even having the occasion to talk about these things uh, is also a real balm in these challenging times. Um, can you talk a little bit, each of you, about how this project created or changed your sense of community? I think for me, um, I, I really enjoyed getting to know the different people who were, who, who were working with me. <laughs> um, they're all either master's students, PhD students, or they had recently completed master's. Um, I was able to learn things from them and that that was really nice. I was going to hold a perspective on on things from them. Um, and then 
a lot of people were sending me emails with just brief snippets of their of their thoughts about comfort food and some of some of those really challenged the assumptions that we all have um one of them that you know that that I always point out um a woman contacted me and said I just wanted you to let you know that you know, that um, my husband and I are both disabled. We've had to live off of food stamps for the last 20 years. We are eating better now than we ever have because the food stamps were expanded and they were able to go to the farmer's market. They were able to use them for fresh produce. And she said, this is wonderful. I'm, I'm healthier now than I ever have been. <laughs> you know, and that was completely the opposite of what, of what we expected. Um, you know, that's, that's not to, you know, to paint a rosy picture of this all either, but, you know, it, it automatically challenged some of, some, some of my assumptions about class in, in America and how class is then tied to community. Similarly, someone else said they, they actually came from, um, an upper middle class back um, and they lived out in, in the suburbs and and they said that in order to go shopping, they had to drive to a supermarket. Um, you know, people didn't usually go out walking in their neighborhoods. You know, they, they they had all this money, but they didn't they didn't have that kind of casual contact that you could get in a city or in, in, in a very small town. And and they said, you know, getting food meant, you know, they they either had to drive somewhere you know, or have it delivered. Um, and, and they could afford to do that. And, and they recognized they had a lot of privilege <laughs> in being able to do that. But she said, you know, it's very, very lonely. We don't have the usual kinds of, of contacts. You know, she didn't realize that going to the grocery store had been a way for her to connect with people before. You know, it was just a chore. And now suddenly, and she recognized that it had been a routine that had provided connection for her that she didn't she didn't recognize that um you know so you know so so two things there you know the have having money definitely made things a lot easier for people but it didn't automatically give them a sense of community it you know it did not give them people to that they felt that they had a sense of belonging with um and then, and then also, be, partly because of the pandemic, people were starting to recognize that these activities around food that we think of as, as just chores, that they were actually opportunities for very meaningful connections with other people. And suddenly we were missing those. What about you, Jerry? Any observations, uh, either through the research or your own experience in these last, you know, seven, eight months around community that have caused you to think a little differently? Um, especially in thinking about the interviews, it's surprising how much when you would start to ask somebody, you know, what their comfort food is, how little they would talk about the food. Um, and what the conversation would turn to is about the meals that they would share with people or the origin the recipe that they got the recipe for their comfort food from and then they would bring off into a different story about that about their grandmother um so on so forth um and so i think it goes to show so much of comfort food is tied up in identity and community 
right, who we decide our tribe is. And so it's really fascinating to hear somebody start to talk about how much they really, really have been going to carbs um, during this time. Then all of a sudden, they're talking about how much they miss their grandchildren or friends. Um, So it really is a lot of focus on the comfort that we get from community rather than the comfort that we get from food. We're going to take a quick break. Thanks for listening to the Big Ideas Podcast. If you are passionate about big ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Hello, and welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Lucy Long and Jerry Reed about their research on comfort foodways and how the network and practices around food provide opportunities for connection. One of the things that also strikes me in the discussion about comfort foods and how they they come from traditions, right, from rituals, whether those are religious or cultural, familial, regional, things like that. I'm wondering, are you seeing in your research new traditions being formed out of these pandemic times or revisions of traditions um, due to these particular circumstances? And if so, can you give us some of those stories? I think I think new traditions are definitely being being created, um, being rediscovered. Um, one of the one one of the definitions of of comfort food, Julie Loker was a a medical sociologist who first started studying, comfort food. Um, and she published an article in 2002 and then, and then, and then in 2004, that kind of established comfort food as, as a scholarly topic. And she identified four different needs that were being fulfilled through comfort food that help that then help people relieve their stress. Um, and one of those was nostalgia. One of them was convenience. And we don't we don't always think of convenience in like fast food can be comfort food because it's very convenient. Um, foods that offer physical comfort, you know, the hot chocolate, you know, on on a cold day, um, and then indulgence, you know, which is what we usually think of. Um, and and then um, about ten years later, um, another researcher identified belonging as a need. That, that was being fulfilled, you know. So people people wanted to eat eat the foods that other people were eating because it gave them a sense of belonging to that community, you know. So that that gave us kind of a baseline for for studying comfort food, and part of what we started finding the the definition of comfort food is foods that help relieve stress. That's that's the accepted American definition. Um, what we started finding is that the kinds of stresses that people were dealing with during the pandemic, I think, are more of an existential nature. Um, we don't have control over our lives anymore. All of a sudden, we have to recognize that nature really is more powerful than humans. <laughs> you know, so you know all these all these kind of myths, you know, that Americans in particular have grown up with, are suddenly being challenged, and you know, so you know, so so we started. What what I started noticing, you know, was that that comfort food was fulfilling some of these more exis, existential kinds of needs. Baking bread, you know, 
I, th- I find it amazing that that so many Americans had gluten sensitivities. You know that that bread purchasing was <laughs> what was dropping, and then all of a sudden they're all making all trying to make bread <laughs> during the pandemic. And a lot of I felt like a lot of what that was showing was people had a sense of control by by cooking in general, and they could control the whole process and they could control the outcome. You know, and that having that sense of control is very important during the during the pandemic when we can't control anything else. Um, it also gives people a sense of agency or efficacy. We can actually do something. You know, it's not just control, but you know, we we can actually do something to change the outcome of things later. You know, so we can organize we can organize our our freezer so that we know that we can now make dinners. For at least another 30 days, you know, and you know that that makes the individual feel like, oh, okay, I can do something to change the outcome of of my future. Um, so, and and then also one of the things that was fascinating that the researchers who were doing most of the interviews pointed out to me, a lot of people were finding comfort by giving comfort to other people, you know working with food banks, um, making food for their neighbors, doing things like something as, as simple as going shopping and checking with all their elderly neighbors and friends to see if anyone needed things picked up. And, you know, that was being nice, you know, but, but it also fulfilled this existential need to feel like as an individual, we have significance in life. We can matter and we can matter to, to these other people. You know, so we started seeing these other needs um, rather than belonging. I like to think about connectedness because part of what we were seeing with with food was people were connecting not just to a community. They were connecting to nature, to the seasons. You know, so many people started gardening. I know, you know, for, for, for the first time I was able to do a CSA because usually I'm I'm not in Bowling Green during the summer, <laughs> you know, you know, so, so suddenly I was, and, and I discovered that, oh, okay, now I'm eating zucchini and tomatoes and nothing else, you know, for the next three weeks. So now I'm eating butternut squash <laughs> and, and potatoes, you know, and, you know, that, that connects me to the seasons. It connects me to nature. It connects me to these larger things that, that help to give kind of a sense of continuity of life. So, you know, that, that kind of connectedness is, is on a, an existential level, um, you know, and it's a much deeper kind of stress than simply I had a bad day, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, some, some of that was very exciting to me, the idea that people were finding comfort by giving comfort. I find that very optimistic and it, it gives me, gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, and I think that's one of the ongoing questions, right, of what of these changes will stick around after, you know, there is a vaccine, after the immediate pandemic crisis has passed. Jerry, are there any other kind of new traditions or observations that, you know, you were struck by in some of the interviews you've done that you want to share? Um, I, I guess I can kind of categorize them in sort of three different ways. There's the um, the new traditions, right? Um, one of the examples I can think of is somebody who 
that has specifically taken time out of their day to have their tea time, specific time, and they specifically have their tea with condensed milk, which is very popular in Newfoundland. Um, then there's also traditions that have changed. Um, so in one interview, we talked about um, how do you have a Seder dinner online um, and the kind of guides that have been sent out by the community and recipes that have been sent out. Um, so that way people can not only have a Seder dinner, but have a Seder dinner for a smaller group rather than the large um, portions are usually served because you have so many people. And then there's also this, it's a slight abandonment of tradition. Um, and I, one of the best examples that I have for this from an interview um, would be a couple that their new sort of date night routine was to go to this very fancy Italian restaurant that you can't eat in. So they would get the takeout um, and eat this very nice, expensive Italian food in their car out of styrofoam boxes. Um, so it's sort of this going away from, you know, sort of being around all these people and you know, it keeps the same idea of it, but it's not really the same thing anymore. Um, and it's also an excuse to get out of the house. It has new meaning um, just beyond that. And so that's kind of three different ways that I think about it. What possibilities do you see in bringing food into classrooms more often and more directly, whether at the K-12 level or in college? Could you talk a little bit about that, the role of education around food? Well, and I steal this concept from a botanist I met in Costa Rica. He became a botanist and then later a tour guide. He said that, you know, he studied botany because there's plants everywhere. So you always have something to talk about. Um, and the same is true with food as a human need. You just need food. So there's always something there to talk about. And food is so intrinsically tied into identity and often in ways that we don't realize, um, which kind of it circles a little bit back to the appropriation piece when we talk about um, Southern food, for instance, and even Appalachian food, these two very different categories that both um, get a lot of their um, food histories um, from uh, historically black cooking um, and slave cooking. And so when we talk about food at any level within education, all of a sudden we're able to talk about individual identities without even having to bring up ethnicity, race, gender. One of the easiest questions to ask to start talking about um, what your uh, identity is without really even talking about identity, but talking about food is to ask how your family prepares rice. Because um, most families eat rice and if you don't eat rice, that also says something when it comes to identity, right? Um, and rice is this really recognizable and very versatile food. And so what you do with it says a lot. And then you can start talking about um, when, when it comes to cultural differences, you know, this aesthetic piece that, you know, this is, you know, it, this is your enjoyment of this specific rice dish comes from your history and your family and how grandma makes it, um, cultural history, right? Um, so food is this vital piece of connection. And my previous research for my thesis focused on how children use food um, as a means of creating connection and community amongst themselves. Um, and they're very active in doing this and examining food and trading food and trying to engage each other with food. Um, it's a human need. And so to be able to bring this human need 
sort of to the forefront of education to use it as a background for conversations in the humanities, conversations in the sciences um, is easy and beneficial because it's very easy to understand. I'd like us to conclude by asking you each to reflect on our current moment and what you think might be the broader implications on how we regard foodways. Uh, And in particular, what lessons do you hope we learn from this moment about food and connection that we can take forward with us um, in the after times, whenever they do eventually arrive? Jerry, would you go first? So much of who we decide who we are as individuals comes back to food. Um, not necessarily the individual dishes, but the people we eat with, the people we choose not to eat with, um, and how we share those meals. And what has this time has done is changed that in very significant ways. But I think people are also finding ways to overcome that and rebuild their community and rebuild the communication that they once had um, through food, through a variety of other means. And so I think one of these overarching pieces that you sort of should begin to look at next is we compare the inequalities between these two new systems Um, because it's easy to see one problem in just one system, but once it changes, it reveals new problems that may even say the problem that we thought we had doesn't exist. That's not even the thing because it's actually this thing. Um, So now is the time to be really solidify What are these major problems that then can be focused on? What about for you, Lucy? What would you hope we take away from this period in history and thinking differently about food and culture? First, I should mention, um, you know, that that listeners can go to to the website and and actually see. We we have an online exhibit from the interview, text and photographs from the interviews. So people can go to www.foodandculture.org and that that website takes them to the exhibit, to the whole project, and they can read the questionnaire and actually respond. They And th- they can also see on that website the curriculum project too. That, um, but I think the thing that, that I take away from this is the significance of food, you know, that we, we tend to overlook the power that it has to create connections for us. And those connections both take us inwards and outwards so that we can connect with our own histories, our own, our own past. <laughs> you know, it can, be, it can be something that's very personal, you know, but it's also, it also connects us outwardly with larger society with with our larger culture and internationally. Um, so I think what the pandemic is doing is making us recognize the significance of small things, um, of everyday things that we normally take for granted. Thank you both so much for joining me. I really love this conversation. Listeners can keep up with ICS by following us on social media at ICSBGSU. You can listen to Big Ideas wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Our producers are Chris Cavera and Marco Mendoza with sound editing by Marco Mendoza. 
Research assistance was provided by Carrie Hanlon. Discussion.